The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a leading provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit SolarEdge.com. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. Renewables are getting really cheap. But does that mean we need to get rid of all subsidies to support them? Many experts argue no, we just need to retarget them. We'll explain how that might be done. Then, in a related conversation, we'll ask whether nuclear needs to be included in state-level renewable energy mandates. And we end with a big agreement between the U.S. and India that could leverage $1 billion for off-grid solar projects in that country. Catherine Hamilton is with me in Washington, D.C., she is a partner with 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine. Hi, how are you doing? I had the distinct pleasure last night of being able to teach at the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, which is a group of the smartest young people you'd ever meet. I always love your intros because you always have a distinct pleasure of speaking somewhere or being recognized for an award. It really says a lot about who you are. So, And I love CLI. They're a great organization. Jigger Shah is in New York City. He's the president of Generate Capital. What has distinguished you this week, sir? Uh, my little one slept through the night last night. So, yes, I am rested and doing well. That is the most distinct of all pleasures. I know that well. <laughs> okay, let's talk about subsidies. When we use that word subsidies, it implies government largesse. It implies an overly generous handout from taxpayers to a corporation. It largely has a negative connotation. There's no doubt that solar and wind and other technologies have benefited from a variety of subsidy regimes, tax incentives, feed-in tariffs, grants, etc. Over time, as renewables have gotten cheaper, lawmakers have found ways to eliminate or phase out spending. And this implies that eventually there will be no government or ratepayer support at all for these technologies. And for some, that's the ideal situation. Uh, and in some cases, that may be true. But if our goal is to decarbonize the energy system quickly while also expanding consumer choice and getting all these other ancillary benefits from distributed energy and renewable energy generally, then eliminating subsidies entirely, entirely may not be the right choice. So rather, we need to think about uh, where and how to spend differently. Two German and U.S. experts recently authored a great report for the International Energy Agency on this topic, and it offers some perspective on how to think about policy frameworks in an era of cheap renewables. Catherine, you are our proud policy guru. What does this report accomplish? Yeah, this is great. This has everything that makes me happy in it, uh, from soup to nuts. So first of all, you have to take an assumption that you want to move to renewables. So that's sort of underlying everything is that you really, that's what the transition that you want to see. And then you have to set up a series of policy frameworks to get you to that place. And what they say is that there are really sort of three different areas in which you need to invest and you need to have all of them, not just one 
or two. And part of what we do is we end up doing one and then getting rid of that and going to another one. But he says there's sort of three main things. One is this early commercialization phase. And that's, you know, to make sure that you have subsidies um, that could have been sort of in the case of the United States and in, in the form of the stimulus grants, research funding, ARPA-E, that kind of support for early commercialization. And then the second is this policy support phase, which would include things like feed-in tariffs, net metering, that are really, the intent is to bridge the cost gap between renewables and fossil, traditional fossil generation. And then finally, what's really the most interesting to me is this longer-term policy framework phase, which is really looking at trying to establish a long-term policy framework that supports this continued scale-up investment in the sector to ensure bankability and scale-up. All of this is underpinned by a, a policy bedrock that includes really basic things that in some cases we don't even have, which is grid access, permitting, planning, zoning, interconnection rules. So they have this policy bedrock underlying um, and I, I felt like this, it really covered everything you could need for a long-term policy move toward renewable energy. I thought it was a very effective overview. Absolutely. One of the things that was most compelling to me was thinking about what you just mentioned, interconnection rules and rate design. And these are not subsidies in the traditional sense of the word, but they are really the next step that everyone is thinking about after we start phasing out these very blunt instruments like feed-in tariffs or tax incentives or grants. And this is one of the most compelling areas of support that uh, I think that the, re the report focuses on. So I like how it redefines what a subsidy is because clearly the market is still stacked against renewable energy. And, and Michael Polsky in our conversation last week, last week alluded to this when we were talking about the PTC, but I think it, it is the case for a variety of incentives and market mechanisms. And, you know, just because renewables are getting cheaper doesn't mean that they fit fairly into the market. So the report does a really good job of defining what those mechanisms are. Did any in particular stand out to you, Jigger, that you think are some of the, the best when we consider best practices for renewable energy integration or, or policy support? Well, I mean, let me back up for a second and provide some context, I think, to the listeners. Because, you know, clearly I came out fairly strongly around um, um, phasing out the ITC and the PTC. Um, and, and I think that there is a misnomer out there that I'm sort of anti Subsidies. I completely agree with Michael's assessment of the renewable portfolio standard and how important it is. I, I do think that when you think about how energy markets work, they're always concocted. So to suggest for a moment that these energy markets have come out of some energy economist's um, brain and they're doing everything rationally and for the right reasons and all that stuff is crazy. Whether it's the wholesale markets that we have today that were completely concocted by Enron and utility companies fighting with each other or to the RPSs today that basically were, you know, in large measure ballot initiatives as well as legislative mandates. I, I just think that all of these things are done um, to basically force a certain outcome in a sectoral policy. And I think what the IEA is saying, which I thought this report was extraordinary, um, 
is saying that if you're going to achieve these climate goals, you have to be intentional about it. So this notion that market-based policies and that the best technologies are going to win doesn't work for renewables. And incidentally, I think, you know, based on what's happening to Exelon in Illinois, doesn't work for nuclear either. Right. And I think we have to recognize that just because you're establishing new market rules doesn't mean that you're screwing with markets themselves or creating an anti-market environment. Like many of these examples that they lay out are just smart policy making that I think anybody across the board, whether they be you know a hardcore uh, right-leaning economist or you know a super liberal who wants to see you know massive amounts of renewable energy quickly, no matter what the cost, we can all agree that like time of use uh, pricing adjustments are important like national interconnection standards are important. The list goes on in terms of how to make market tweaks that level the playing field without having to talk about tax incentives or feed-in tariffs or what have you. So I think that the idea that making these adjustments is anti-market is completely wrong. And IEA does a really good job of laying out why these are helpful to the market. Yes. And part of what you need to do in the system is to make sure that you do more you, that you're that the market is more efficient and in a way you have to make sure that you um compensate for flexibility because flexibility is what the what the system needs and the markets are not set up right now to compensate for flexibility at all they're compensate they compensate now for generation and you know delivering to load but once you start compensating for flexibility you're able to lose use everything in the system in a su such a more efficient way that you'll be able to use all of these resources much smarter and that's one of the underpinnings is is making sure that the system is acknowledges that flexibility and is able to be flexible, and then you can build your policies uh, to accommodate that. And the fact that IEA focused so much on that is really important and says a lot about where renewables are at. We're not just talking about establishing a bunch of RPSs and throwing as many projects uh, into a utility territory as possible. Now that we have cheap renewables, these can provide valuable grid services. I mean, they've always been able to provide those services, but we have a lot more of them. And the imperative for providing those services is greater than ever before. And so IEA does a great job of cataloging um, what those market mechanisms might be to enable renewables to provide the grid balancing services that we all know that they can. And, and that just says a lot about the maturity of these technologies. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think, I mean, just to criticize the report a little bit, just to provide the other side maybe a little bit, I think one thing that I found a little bit uh, sort of weak about the report is that they, they attempted to look at this really from the solar and wind uh, point of view, even though they tried to make this more broad. And my sense is, is that when you look at the policies that they outline, um, it's not clear exactly how we should implement all these policies to make uh, these policies agnostic across all low-carbon technologies, whether it's geothermal or biomass or, or nuclear or other technologies, energy efficiency, demand response. Um, and so I don't know that they did a great job of figuring out how to make these markets um, less intentional between different low-carbon technologies. Um, so I think that's one hole here. The other hole here is I think that they um, continue to be biased around the bankability 
piece, which I think largely comes out of the feed-in tariff conversations in Europe. And they, I think, missed some of the bankability um, innovations that's occurred in the U.S. around how Microsoft and others have provided PPAs and then agreed to contracts for differences. Um, and so there are a lot of innovations around bankability that are happening in the U.S. that I think we are going to export to other markets around the world that they just are not completely up to speed on. Yeah, Jigger, one thing I wanted to ask you about are synthetic PPAs that they're doing in Texas. Can you explain what those are? Yeah, I'm ashamed to say that like those still confuse me. Well, there's no there's no right answer to what a synthetic PPA is in Texas. But basically, you know, the, there's two pieces to this, right? So one is, is that the developer wants um, revenues that are largely uh, fixed, right? Because that's how they get low-cost debt from the debt markets. And so so when you look at the Microsoft with Altenex sort of like, you know, example, Microsoft is providing the wind energy company a fixed PPA at, let's call it $35 a megawatt hour. And then they are, um, the wind farm is selling the power into the grid, getting whatever it gets for it. So let's say it averages $29 a megawatt hour. Well, then Microsoft just lost $6 a megawatt hour on that contract, which they chalk up to the price of green power, the price of a hedge against natural gas price volatility, et cetera. So that's that's one end of the spectrum, which Kaiser and Microsoft and others have done. In Texas, what's happening is there are groups of people who are creating complex hedges um, in the marketplace. So for instance, Solar City is trying to do residential PPAs in Houston. And and there is a group in Texas which has said that through their physical assets, which is diesel generators, and through um, hedges that they can put in the market with Morgan Stanley and a few other folks, they can actually largely approximate what the PPA price is to the retail customer in Houston for about 10 years. Um, they can't go much beyond 10 years. And so but that's not fixed. It's not like Microsoft's $35 a megawatt hour. It's got some variability in it, but the variability has become so tight that SolarCity has said we can accept that. And our our lenders have said as long as that stuff is less than 5% of the overall fund that we're funding it with, then the lenders will be okay with just sweeping it under the rug. And so these are synthetic PPAs, but they're, use, they're using physical generating assets so that if the Texas market, for instance, was short and were to go to $5 a kilowatt hour, which is possible in Texas um, in extreme situations, then you can protect yourself from that through physical diesel generation. Is this a uniquely American construct that can be exported to other countries? Yeah. I mean, in fact, there, this is being done in places like Pune in Maharashtra and in India, where, you know, Pune um, is sort of in the shadow of of Mumbai um, in the same state. And so if they're short on power, they make sure the power goes to Mumbai and that Pune gets screwed. So what Pune has done is Pune has actually taken control of contractually uh, lots of people's diesel generators within industrial companies. Um, and then they have the right to turn them on to keep always on power in Pune. And they just build the ratepayers for that in a virtual system. Now you can imagine that's really expensive. So solar and wind guys are coming to Pune and saying, hey, we can do that for most of the hours, a lot cheaper. You still keep the diesel generators and you still keep those contracts in place, but um, we could run those diesel generators 90% less if you signed these types of contracts with us. So these synthetic contracts are in the early days, and this is where investment banks like Morgan Stanley and others play just an extraordinary role in clearing the market. 
You mentioned other technologies that were a little underserved by this report. And I do think that there are industries that are attempting to promote themselves with the same language in terms of grid support in order to get beyond just the traditional conversation around tax support. And I'm thinking specifically of the geothermal industry, which a couple of years ago said, we need to just stop talking about ourselves as baseload power. We can be a more flexible tool for balancing the grid in places like California. We can supplement variable wind and solar. And we need to do a better job of talking to regulators and just promoting ourselves as a more dynamic technology. And I wonder if you see that happening in other industries or if you have comment on the geothermal industry attempting to brand itself in that way because it it was a seemingly it was seemingly their first attempt to get beyond the the conversation around the PTC which is a whole different uh conversation that we are going to have in the coming weeks by the way so the the biggest challenge with a lot of these technologies is is money and we can talk about that you know in, in broader brushstrokes but the technology itself is not necessarily what the policymakers uh, worry about. What the policymakers worry about is to say, if we do this technology or this policy fix, will we get like $5 billion invested, right? And the geothermal industry has not proven that they can, right? So every time that they've gotten PTCs or this or that or whatever, Calpine says, great, we can do what we need to do to expand our markets or Chevron. But, you know, Alterac or U.S. Geothermal or all these other smaller players all basically fall short from delivering, right? And so what the government of India or Brazil or other places worry about with these other technologies is not necessarily the technology, which may actually have operating challenges or, you know, may need RPE support or other things. What they worry about is is if, if it's not a one-for-one split, right? If it's not like I pass this policy, I get a bunch of investment, they're not really that they don't want to focus a lot of attention and brain power on you. And that's why you see all this brain power on solar and wind, but you see almost no brain power in these other technologies in the emerging markets. In the US and other places you see some of that in California, but in other markets like, you know, that are more or the sorry, that are less mature, they just don't want to tolerate all of these sort of fanciful conversations. And so you have this challenge with landfill gas, with small hydro, with biomass, where, you know, their scale is at the scale of 50 million or 100 million. It's not at the scale necessary to command their attention. So really what they need then is not as much of the policy support phase that we've been focused on with wind and solar, right, which would be net metering, feed-in tariffs, but maybe they need more of the policy framework phase, which um, allows for a sort of continual um, ability to participate um, based on whatever the take the goal is um, for for whatever the particular grid system is, so making sure that you have you know consistent policy that compensates them for what they're able to produce is is that what you're thinking for what some uh, a resource like a geothermal would need? Yeah, that's right. So basically, geothermal and nuclear, for that matter, have put themselves out there as as mature technologies. But point in fact is that everybody who raised a hundred million dollars to to chase this in sort of the you know, 2009 timeframe, the ORMATs, the US geothermals, et cetera, have all basically largely um, underperformed. And the same thing's true with nuclear. So when you think about the third generation, you know, nuclear plants, which is what has been built, um, 
you know, no one's excited about those technologies. The cost structure is not there, et cetera. Everybody sort of wants the fourth generation, but the fourth generation nuclear technologies are really hard to finance. And so you need loan guarantees, you need this, you need that. You need an intentional policy. And, and even when you have that, you know, even China, for instance, is afraid to deploy fourth generation technologies, let alone the, you know, the fifth generation type stuff like the Hyperions and the micro nuclear and all the small modular reactors, all of these things. And so so there's a lot of folks in the policy sphere and in the white paper sphere who are saying, oh, nuclear's, you know, mature and we should scale it up. But the reality of the situation is that nobody wants to scale up third generation nuclear. And so so for all of these technologies, we need to be honest with ourselves and say, look, they're actually not technologies that mainstream capital wants to chase. And so we have to be able to get to 15% rates of return. We have to figure out a way to use grant mechanisms or feed-in tariff mechanisms or other mechanisms to greatly de-risk these technologies to be able to, you know, help them cross over the valley of death. Well, and you need to have certainty in the market. So you can have all of these various policies around the edges that will create some certainty. But unless you have taken a policy as a nation that we want to move to low or zero carbon energy, um, you don't know for sure if you're going to get the support for it. Yeah. I mean, I'll just finish by saying what I said in the beginning, and, and that is this is changing the way we talk about support of renewables. And largely, it's a product of where renewables are themselves. They are much more economically competitive. And we do not need to throw gobs of cash at these technologies anymore to make them succeed. There, but there are other market-tweaking mechanisms that, are out, that we need to put in place to enable these technologies. And, and one final point on like a national energy policy. They talk about this long-term certainty and the need for a national plan. In my opinion, at least here in the U.S., that doesn't necessarily mean... Congress coming together and saying, we want 40% renewables by a certain date. That might mean members of com Congress coming together and saying, we need some sort of inter interconnection policy nationwide. We need a national permitting policy for these technologies. I think, again, we've, we've seen progress on permitting on federal lands for a lot of large projects. So there are some pretty important things that we can be doing that don't that, that get us to where we want to go without having to set these big mandates in p place that piss everybody off or throwing gobs of money at these technologies. No, but be careful about your conclusion, though, Stephen. Like, your comments are largely um, solar and wind comments. I, I actually think geothermal needs gobs of cash. I actually think nuclear needs gobs of cash. I actually think that these other technologies are actually not going to make it. In fact, if you wanted to save every existing nuclear plant in the country, you would need to actually subsidize them to the to each one of the 17 or so plants that are getting shut down in the U.S., the existing ones. You would need to subsidize them to the tune of $80 million a year per plant. That is very true. It's a good point. And that brings us to our second discussion about nuclear. But before we get into that, I do want to mention our sponsor, which is Solar Edge. Solar PV systems are not just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal. They now have brains. And Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smart. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a solar module. It is an architecture of solar modules inverters, monitoring, and now batteries and home load management devices. What's the secret to adding intelligence to all these systems? The inverter, of course. On the horizon is a future where the smart solar edge inverter controls a smart home, connected to the grid and to the cloud, that controls energy production, storage, and even your appliances. 
Solar PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage. In this future, belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy, visit SolarEdge.com. And thanks for their support. Okay, back at it. Now that Jigger mentioned some of these other technologies that might need uh, much broader support, nuclear is an important technology in this conversation. So our, this second story does relate to the first. It's about rethinking policy support uh, specifically for nuclear plants. And there are a lot of nuclear plants on the verge of getting shut down around this country. Many people are worried that America's carbon emissions are about to shoot way up if we start seeing these plants come offline in en masse. Should we be doing more to protect these plants? Two groups, the Breakthrough Institute and Environmental Progress, are out with a new proposal, which is to make renewable energy portfolio standards. God, I, I really hate that term. So I'm just, I call them renewables targets, into low-carbon portfolio standards that include nuclear. There are, of course, many environmental groups that strongly oppose this, but many more are, are considering it. A lot of people are coming back over to nuclear, and they see this as a common-sense way to keep emissions down. It's also a really good counterbalance to EPA's clean power plan, which doesn't give much credit to, to new nuclear uh, Getting rid of many of our existing nuke plants would just make it very hard to achieve the modest targets set out by President Obama. So the question that we're going to ask is, should nukes be added to renewable energy mandates? And Jigger, you seem to indicate support for this on Twitter. You said you think the nuclear industry is really bad at promoting its own interests. We've had many conversations about that. Is this a good opportunity for nuclear to saddle up to the table? It is. I mean, look, I think that the first step is to admit that there is no nuclear industry, right? To I mean, so the nuclear industry right now are simply the five or six companies that own nuclear power plants, right? So Exelon, Entergy, you know, and, and a few other folks. And so, so the challenge that we've had is that there is no pure play promoter of nuclear power. The folks at Exelon and other places are actually, you know, sort of not big fans of promoting solar and wind in their territory, right? So, you know, Exxon clearly owns a lot of wind and solar farms outside of Illinois, for instance, but they don't love um, more wind going into Illinois. And so they've blocked wind power for the past sort of three years in Illinois. And as part of this deal, you know, they had a 2015 proposal, then a 2016 proposal, and now they're coming up with, you know, a new uh, proposal that finally... Um, does accommodate wind and solar called the Next Generation Energy Plan. And it looks like they've finally been browbeaten and realized that if they're going to save these two nuclear plants that are under threat of being shut down in Illinois, they're going to have to broaden their base of support to include the clean energy uh, folks. But, you know, I think that the Breakthrough Institute and those guys are, you know, great at writing reports, but ultimately they're not lifting a finger to actually corral the votes in the Illinois State Assembly. Yeah, and also, Jigger, some of those companies that have nuclear plants are also conflicted out um, through having, you know, fossil fossil fuel plants as well. And so they're not doing what it really needs to be done on trying to help the nuclear industry, which would be to really strengthen. So the Clean Power Plan, ironically, doesn't do anything for nuclear power because um, you can't get credit for the plants that are already out there. The standard really isn't stringent enough to drive the industry forward um, because basically you, 
you know, everybody knows that if you, you can do the clean power plan and it sets a great goal and it gives us good uh, relations overseas. But in the end, a lot of states can just do efficiency and keep going with what they're doing and they'll meet their standards. Um, but there's no credit for these existing clean sources. And so they do need, I talked to somebody in the nuclear energy industry and they said, yes, we would love to be part of an RPS or a clean energy standard. So that would create actually some market forces for us because there just isn't any other policy out there that'll do it. Right. But who said that exactly, Catherine? I'm not asking you to name names, but like my sense is that's a low level employee at NEI, right? Who doesn't actually make decisions. I mean, the person who makes the decision on getting this done is Exelon, Entergy, a few other companies that basically own these nuclear plants. There's 17 or so nuclear plants that are slated for closure over the next five years, which will represent something on the order of, you know, 15 to 20 percent of all of the low carbon energy in the country that'll be shut shut down. And I think we can save all of it, but there has to be a partnership formed, right? I mean, like, for instance, you know, adding existing nuclear to clean power plan is a political decision. We could probably get that done if NRDC and everybody else was at the table. And the question is, what would they get for it? Well, what you would get for it is more stringent clean power plan rules. When I talked to my friends at Exelon, they said that they thought that the nuclear plants could be saved with roughly an $11 carbon tax. I think we'd all be floored if there was an $11 carbon tax added to, you know, the the power sector in Illinois, which saved the nuclear industry, provided additional revenue streams to the solar and wind industry, and taxed the coal plants at $11 a ton, such that um, they would be shut down faster. Wow, you think an $11 carbon tax would, would do enough? That's what Exelon believes their shortfall would be filled by. They said 10 to 15 and when I pushed them on it they said like 11 probably. Huh. So if you're a if you're a plant developer, would you rather go through a ten, a 10-year process for licensing renewal which also costs a lot of money to go through that or would you rather just build new gas plants because guess what the new gas plants are not under 111D the clean power plan. And so essentially all these ga- these nuclear plants could shut down and you could build new gas plant plants and you would be unaffected by the clean power plan. Yeah, but 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 my point to you is that if you care about climate change, you want to get as many years as possible out of the existing nuclear plants, right? Because because we've already paid for whatever carbon deficit was needed to create those plants, right? So going forward, those plants are providing fairly low carbon electricity um, for the next 10, 15, 20 years, whatever you can stretch out of those plants. And I think it will take that long for the solar and wind industry to scale up to replace all of that power. Now, for the next generation nuclear plants, we talked about that separately. There's a whole program that has to be established. But my point to the nuclear industry is, you know, stop bad-mouthing the environmentalists and the clean energy people. If you want to do a deal, let's make a deal. But you actually have to bring something to the table. You can't just browbeat us by saying, you know, you guys don't care enough about uh, low carbon energy. And if you really cared, you'd do the right thing. This is a carrots and sticks thing. So, you know, give me more um, renewable energy targets and I'll, you know, include nuclear within the low carbon policy such that we can get you your $11 a ton that you need to stay alive. But isn't Exelon's willingness to negotiate on this in Illinois an indication that the nuclear industry is starting to come to the table on this? I'm hoping that that's the conclusion. Yeah, I mean, that is what I'm hoping, but it's too early to tell. Exelon has been fighting wind and solar so vehemently for so many years that it's not clear to me whether they've actually made the 
entire move, right? I mean, I know that they're over a barrel right now, and so they're making a deal with the Environmental Law Policy Center and a few other folks, and Michael Polsky's group is involved out of, you know, Chicago, et cetera. But, you know, we'll see where the votes lie. I mean, this is this issue, I think, missed its window in the spring session, so I think it'll be brought up again in the fall session in Illinois, and we'll see if it passes. Catherine, I want to go back to a comment that you made because you made no judgment on that. You just stated that it would be more economically beneficial to shut down some of these plants and maybe just build a bunch of gas plants under the clean power plan. But let's be clear, that would be a disaster because that would keep us running in place, basically. Renewables would have to make up for that lost nuclear generation, and then we would have you know, 40% more emissions from natural gas plus methane emissions. Yeah. And that's just, that's sort of the worst case scenario, right? Is that your emissions actually go up. Um, but that is sort of the, um, one of the issues with the clean power plan is that under 111D, they're not regulating new sources. So that's a, that's looking long-term and that's why we probably need to make sure that we keep low or zero carbon sources going as long as they can. And then there was one point that you brought up, Jigger, and you said, uh, the Breakthrough Institute is good at writing reports, but is not doing a lot to leverage the political power behind creating these standards. Having worked at the Center for American Progress for a couple of years, I understand full well how uh, academics write really good reports, but then they sit on a shelf and don't do much with them. Uh, but I will say that I think the Breakthrough Institute has done a lot more to to attempt to build a grassroots campaign around support for this stuff in Illinois and elsewhere. Am I wrong in that? I did not talk to the Breakthrough Institute before this podcast, but based on the activity I've seen, my my assumption is that they have done a lot more on the grassroots side. Uh, no, they haven't done anything. I mean, the I mean, the bottom line is is that what the Breakthrough Institute does is their approach is is to shame anyone and everyone who doesn't believe in their point of view. And so they're horrible at making friends. And so what they've done is activate people who have the same abrasive personality that they have um, to be even more loud about, um, you know, the pro-nuclear position, but they haven't done a single thing to actually create bridges to the existing, you know, power structure around Sierra Club or NRDC or others to actually get them to get on side in this area. They just, you know, try to make fun of them as every chance they can get. Yeah, they spend a lot of time bashing uh, renewables and distributed generation uh, rather than seeking to, to find ways that they could work together for sure. Yeah, they've come around on renewables, though. I think that they've moderated their tone on renewables. They just have um, a different idea of what the broader portfolio of technology should look like. But they don't have so, a different view on what the broader technology will look like. In fact, all of us share the same view. I mean, to suggest for a moment that I believe that solar and wind are going to meet 100% of the needs for the United States and electricity is stupid. I don't believe that. I do believe that there's a mix of technologies that have to do it. But, you know, the thing is that all of us have to work every day to conduct commerce. So we actually have to pass laws. We have to get regulations passed. We've got to get FERC to do stuff. we got to get utilities to do stuff. We actually have to do something. And so I can't just make off-the-cuff remarks and browbeat people and make fun of people and then not actually you know, deliver on that stuff. I, I, you know, and so what they do on a regular basis is say solar and wind are inter intermittent technologies. More recently, they've, they've tried to say, well, you know, solar and wind have a role in the final outcome. But even then, when you push them on it, they're like, oh, Germany sucks and they did bad things. And what we're trying to do is to warn the rest of Europe not to follow Germany. 
I think so far they tend to target people who think we should power the country with only renewables. And they have a much more moderate tone toward people who are willing to accept that there are a broad range of technologies. But I do agree that there has been a real tribalism in this debate for a long time. And it's a microcosm of what we see on the political level, which is what we're talking about here. Nuclear itself has thought of itself as a completely different technology. And solar and wind and other renewables are the enemy. And now we need to get together and talk in a you know, low-carbon collective voice to be able to create effective policy to make sure that these people operating nuclear plants can keep these nu nuclear plants going while also supporting the emerging technologies that are increasingly competing with those plants. So the tribalism is very real on the academic level and it's very real on the, on the political level and there are slight winds of change in, on that front. I, I'm not willing to acknowledge any of that, but that's fine. <laughs> Hey, I'm just trying to get the I'm just trying to get the solar and wind guys to talk to each other, Jigger. Seriously, I'm just trying to get the small wind guys to not be hated by the large wind guys. Well, well at least we are all talking to each other still, and that's a good thing because we have one more story to get through, and that is in India. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi was in the U.S. this week for his seventh meeting with President Obama. Energy did play a major role in the meeting, mostly nuclear and solar. India is looking to the U.S. for technical and financing expertise as it seeks to expand its nuclear fleet to 63 gigawatts by 2032. India also has an ambitious and many would say very unrealistic solar target of 100 gigawatts by 2022. However realistic, the Obama administration is indicating it will do anything it can to get India close to that target. And this week it set up a $40 million financing arm with the Indian government to support off-grid solar and microgrids throughout India. It's a fund designed to leverage up to a billion dollars in financing for solar in the coming years, and that could come from governments, from multinational banks, um, from a variety of other private financiers. Uh, we don't really know if that billion-dollar target will actually be achieved, but that's what they're hoping for. Jigger, how would this joint fund actually work, and what is its significance? Well, I mean, the joint fund is largely modeled off of the ASIF, um, Africa Clean Energy Finance Facility that, at the time, Secretary Hillary Clinton announced at the Rio Plus 20 conference. Um, and what it recognizes is that the first $500,000 that a lot of these companies need to establish um, the sort of you know fact patterns necessary to get larger amounts of capital uh, unlocked is largely missing, um, and largely really doesn't have a rate of return associated with it in these markets. Um, and so, along with the Indian government, what's interesting here is that that money has been put up by U.S. foundations, you know, foundations such as the Packard Foundation. And so, you're talking about. Um, a really flexible vehicle. The, the proof is going to be in the pudding, and we'll see whether the money actually is easy to access and all the things that they claim it to be. But the fact that, um, but the fact that this kind of money is available—sixty million dollars—is a lot of money in a market like India to really unlock, um, you know, this business model innovation. So I, I'm I'm pretty bullish about it, and I think. Uh, separately, what happened was that the Modi government has been announcing this this electrification by 2019 stuff for a long time. But 
But just before this meeting, the Ministry of New and Renewable Energy issued a draft national policy for mini and microgrids. Um, and the policy is really, you know, aims to create up to 500 megawatts of capacity in the private sector over the next five years. And so they've basically released the next level of detail necessary to unlock the billion dollars of the project finance and private finance necessary to meet this lofty target. Um, and so, you know, that's really welcome news because this next level of detail has been missing. So who does the due diligence for these projects? What are some of the hangups that could prevent this money from flowing as quickly as they hope it will? Well, I think that, you know, the the first fund, the $60 million fund, I think OPIC is going to be involved in the due diligence there. So and OPIC has had some success at giving money to Simpa Networks and a few other folks in India already before this fund. So I think they have a criteria by which to evaluate folks. I think the other um, the other monies is complicated because basically, so when you look at the African uh entrepreneurs like Mcopa, Afgar Electric and you know others in Nigeria um, what they will tell you is that this is actually not a clean energy play only that in fact 50% of their returns are coming from what we determine to be project finance like clean energy but the other 50% of the return is actually coming from big data um, by getting uh, these individual families to pay back a solar loan you're actually in effect creating a FICO score for these families, many of whom don't have credit established in India and places like that. So there's actually another business model by which to take microgrid customers or solar home system customers and actually sell credit data, um, not unlike the microfinance industry has done. And so the way in which entrepreneurs pitch themselves to the marketplace will determine whether this thing really gets unlocked or whether this gets bogged down in, you know, in rate of return calculations. So Jigger, is there a place for um, like the Finnish utility Fortum OYJ wants to self-finance a bunch of these projects? I mean, they're sitting on $10 billion and they want to uh, potentially invest $455 million in solar and take on that risk in India. Is is that also going to be a piece of this puzzle? That's right. And and the, the question becomes, how do we pitch them? Right. So so if we pitch them as a microfinance institution, so if the microfinance institutions in India partner with the off grid institutions in India and say, you know, microfinance traditionally has not allowed for solar to get financed under microfinance rules because they thought it wasn't directly uh, associated with income generation at a family level, if they then figure out a way to get over that, then if they jointly make a proposal to the Finnish and say, we would like to raise $455 million, that's a pretty easy lift because um, the microfinance institutions in India already have several billion dollars worth of assets under management. So raising $455 million is not you know, unheard of within the existing size of their industry. But if you know someone like Simpa Networks or Selco or somebody went to go ask for $455 million, there's no way that they could justify that they you know could handle that kind of money. The last question that I have on this is what's the likelihood that it will leverage a billion dollars? They always need to throw out a big splashy number like that to make people notice the announcement. I mean, 40 to $60 million, that's, uh, that's a lot of money. But the billion dollars in future financing, I'm always skeptical about. Should I be skeptical? Well, of course, we should all be skeptical, right? I mean, this is not something that is... You know, well, based on previous experience, like, do, does that number usually materialize or is it half of what they usually claim it is from from what you've seen? 
Um, where do they usually get in that final goal? Well, I think India has greatly um, surpassed its initial goals on the uh, deployment of solar uh, in India that they established back in 2009, 2010. Um, I do think that there's a tremendous amount of scale up occurring around the world. And so many countries, I think, have done a good job against these targets. Um, but I think that the bigger, broader point here is that this was really a groundbreaking announcement between the government of India and the U.S. government and a bunch of U.S. foundations to create innovative financing mechanisms for rooftop and distributed solar in India. Right. And that's a big deal. The other thing is that you're talking about a prime minister who represents more people than pretty much any other prime minister on the planet, save, you know, the uh, the government of China um, coming to the U.S. And the press releases coming out of that meeting were um, were climate related. I mean, they could have talked about manufacturing, they could have talked about IP, they could have talked about tech, but instead, like the the most powerful U.S. and India diplomatic, um, you know, folks were talking about climate as the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet, and the way to get more people out of poverty in India, the way to create a lot of trade opportunities for U.S. companies. I mean, that's a big freaking deal, and I, I think the fact that clean energy is in the catbird seat, to use Carl Pope's terminology, is amazing. Yeah, I was so worried um, when Sun Edison collapsed and had taken such a big position in India, but it just appears that that has not reduced the enthusiasm in the market for solar or in their commitment in India at all. One other side comment is that, you know, India's had this historic drought this year, and they've had to shut down a tremendous number of coal plants and actually wean them off because they don't have the cooling water to maintain them. And so, you know, this is just all happening at the same time. So, you know, like it's not necessarily just a climate thing. It's that India physically can't run its coal plants um, for the number of hours it needs to because it doesn't have the cooling water. Yeah. And this is a big question related to new nuclear, too. If they want to get 60 gigawatts of new nuclear plants and they have a water cooling problem, then that could be a hindrance as well. So we'll see how that shakes out. That's the end of the show. Let's tell our listeners something they do not know. Jigger, what's your story this week? So, you know, I've been following a number of uh, really interesting breakthroughs, I would say, in Canada. Um, the most recent breakthrough is at Alberta, which is the Texas of Canada, you know, has carbon tax legislation that just passed. I mean, it's just mind-blowing to me that that basically you've got the 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 tar sands capital of the world um, with Premier Rachel Nutley's government um, passing a carbon tax, and you know it's it's extraordinary. I, I just I I can't even imagine that we would have thought that just three years ago that that province would have moved as fast as it has, and it's just I think it gives me hope that, you know, really, I would say just on the strength of our technologies and all these other things that that we can see these kinds of changes in every part of the world, not just in Alberta. And including when Donald Trump is president, he'll pass a carbon tax, too. <laughs> well, there was that story that came out that showed that he was pro uh, climate regulation and 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 uh, dealing with climate before he was against it. Yeah, he signed on to a, a letter talking about catastrophic climate change. <laughs> 
Catherine Hamilton, tell us something we do not know. Enlighten us. Yeah, so I'm going to now go to the southern point uh, to to counterbalance Jigger's northern point of someone you never thought would be doing renewables down to Mississippi. And I called my friends down there and said, all right, what's going on? I just want to check in on that Kemper plant because we've talked about this before. So now it's under an SEC investigation. And I, I know, Jigger, you like to joke about people using Fortran and COBOL. Well, they're using Excel spreadsheets to account for all their expenses and evidently they're not doing a good job and there are you know a cabillion dollars in overruns and they're under investigation so the thought is that they probably will never get going but the good news is that in December they passed a feed-in tariff they have a net metering rule there's still some clarification that needs to happen on those but the trends are really good in the right direction in the south and in Mississippi in particular I can get a second Donald Trump reference in here he recently talked about clean coal and said that he would love, he'd make coal really clean, really beautiful, and he'd bring coal miner jobs back. So he loves that sweet, really clean, clean coal. Maybe he is what Kemper needs. <laughs> and I've got a third Donald Trump reference. What do you know? The trifecta, the Trumpfecta. I listen to a podcast called Trumpcast from Slate. And I've been addicted to it since day one. I have been it's brilliant. fascinated I am too. by Donald Trump. I just can't look away. Uh, I made my opinions and thoughts on Donald Trump very clear in our last episode. I think he is a national emergency. He is a danger to democracy. But if you want to understand how the rest of the world sees him, if you want to understand uh, how he operates as a businessman, uh, his psyche, they do a great job of interviewing all these experts who have dealt with Donald Trump in some way or who diagnose him or who talk about the implications of the policies he's espousing. So good. So I highly recommend it. And, uh, you know, I implore you to listen to it because it really does a good job of explaining who the heck this guy is. Yeah, I'm addicted to it, too. Uh, it's a really good one. I am not addicted to it because I refuse to spend any more time thinking about Donald Trump. <laughs> well then I'm sorry for the last five minutes of the show that brings us to the very end thank you to Solar Edge for helping support this show thank you to our audience for their continued support please pass on some links to your friends and colleagues rate us and review us on iTunes there have been a number of uh, new ratings and reviews thank you so much we really appreciate it you can find us wherever podcasts are downloaded Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, NPR One, and many, many more. We are also on Twitter, so follow the Energy Gang there. Follow Catherine and follow Jigger. Uh, Catherine, you are Clean Grid View, and Jigger is Jigger Shaw DC, right? Did I get those right? Yep. Yep. Finally, you can send us questions to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week.